Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you had a good weekend, and it's hard to believe that we've got uh, one more day to go before August is over with. You know, time is flying by uh, very fast. Uh, it is hard to believe that back at the start of this month, the Olympics were coming to an end. But that seems like um, ancient history now when you consider just how fast time has um gone by but um but that's just the way life is the older we get uh, one thing i can say is that um i know that it's been at least a good three days since i was on the air with you all last but perhaps that's not a bad thing because uh as i've said before you know life can't always revolve around uh podcasting but what i do know is that uh, during that three-day span since i was on the air last i did see where um more people were listening to uh, podcasts most recently and from um, and from months past. So um, one thing I can say is that uh, thank you to all of you um, new listeners out there and thank you to uh, seasoned veteran listeners who have been with me since June of last year who not only continue to listen to the podcast but also getting the word out to those whom are interested in um, not just history, but learning about subjects that they thought that, you know, they had known all there was to know about, and now they are learning more about those uh, subjects that have been discussed from uh, podcasts past. Well, here we are again with the War of 1812 in Wisconsin, the Battle for Prairie du Chien by Mary Elise Antoine. And in this um, segment, we are going to be uh, discussing about a fellow um, explorer. He's one that probably doesn't come to uh, many people's uh, minds right away, but he um, does play a um, crucial role in uh, the exploration uh, process along the um, Mississippi River. Of course, there's always one uh, famous exploration that I can think of with regards to uh, westward uh, expansion. And as a matter of fact, we're going to um, talk about that here momentarily as our uh, lead-off uh, question for this uh, podcast uh, segment, or episode, rather, I should say. Let's uh, So therefore, let's fasten our seatbelts and uh, be prepared for uh, another great journey that lies ahead. Besides Ohio's admittance into the Union come 1803, Ohio was the 17th state folks to be admitted into the Union, the first state in the 19th century for being accepted into the United States, which is a, a nice honor unto itself. But besides Ohio being admitted into the Union in 1803, were there any other major events that took place along the Western Front that same year? I hope most of you all would be on the same page right here as I am because... When I think of 1803, um, I think of something huge that happened for the United States. For starters, the Louisiana Purchase Acquisition from France took place that went about doubling the United States territory. And whom is the um, ruler of France, folks? He's an emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte. That's whom... Um, you know, we, we, the Louisiana Purchase, um, Napoleon was uh, gracious enough to give the uh, United States an excessive amount of land without having to um, go to war over it. So here we go about acquiring, through the Louisiana Purchase, uh, a vast amount of land from France that goes about doubling the United States territory. And with this land purchase of the Louisiana Territory would come about a famous expedition led by none other than Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Although this expedition didn't begin in the same year, 1803, it began a year later in May 1804, <clears throat> where they and their uh, team of journeymen uh, departed um, from what we now know as present-day St. Louis, Missouri, it would venture all the way west to the Pacific Ocean. Well, let me ask you this. Um, 
whenever I think of westward expansion, or westward um, journeys to explore the unknown, uh, Lewis and Clark are always the ones that come to my mind in terms of leading that famous expedition where they, you know, went all the way to the Pacific Ocean. You know, they went as far west as um, present-day uh, Oregon, and I believe uh, Washington State, they did venture into what we now know as Idaho, uh, Wyoming. Uh, they uh, covered a huge swath of uh, land. As a matter of fact, if any of you all ever have been to Monticello or plan on going, uh, when you visit Monticello, uh, there are plenty of uh, Lewis and Clark artifacts. Uh, some are... Um, some are, are authentic artifacts, others are um, what you call like maybe makeshift artifacts that resemble the real things. But, uh, but one of the artifacts that you can find on display when you enter Monticello is a, um, I want to say it's a, a giant uh, tooth of a, of a species that lived out on the, um, out on the uh, vast uh, prairie lands uh, west of the uh, Mississippi. So that's just something to uh, think about when you go to visit Monticello. Now, let me ask you this. How many um, expeditions were undertaken or went about taking place during Thomas Jefferson's presidency? How many expeditions out west, folks? Was it um, five? Was it uh, three? Or was it just the one um, involving Meriwether Lewis and William Clark and their uh, group of journeymen? The answer is choice A, folks. There were five expeditions that took place during Thomas Jefferson's presidency in exploring large territorial regions that the U.S. acquired through the Louisiana Purchase. Well, I think it's fair to say that um, one team alone can't do all the work and come back and say, well, we've covered everything. You know, I think history has always wanted us to believe that it was just this one team that did the uh, improbable. But we now know that one team alone couldn't have been responsible for making all of history during this time. In other words, the more expeditions you had, the better the understanding that are the better the understanding there would be for our young nation to realize, hey, we've got more territory now. How are we going to go about um, handling all the unknowns that lie out there? And how are we going to go about making sure that outsiders like the Indians understand that, hey, we've got territory now that belongs to us. How can we avoid war? Good luck on that. What lieutenant became the first American to act as an agent for the United States by traveling up the Mississippi, which included establishing alliances, or rather I should say friendships with Indian tribes, to selecting sites for U.S. forts regarding fur trade control. Was it um, William Clark? Was it Zebulon Pike? Or was it choice C, none of the above? Well, I mean, somebody, um, somebody has to be the first to um, act as an agent for the United States by going up the Mississippi. The answer is choice B, uh, Zebulon Pike. So Zebulon Pike um, has some interesting history. Um, for starters, his father served in General George Washington's Continental Army during the American Revolutionary War. So Zebulon Pike is named after his father. Zebulon was born on January the 5th, 1779 in Lamington, New Jersey. I had never heard of Lamington, New Jersey, but I uh, looked it up on a map online and saw that it's located in... Um, what you might say western New Jersey or closer to the northwest part of the state. But it's just um, north of uh, Trenton uh, being New Jersey's capital. So like the elder Zebulon Pike, uh, the younger uh, Zebulon goes about making the army his career. 
The Pike family uh, lived along a series of forts in Ohio and Illinois. Okay, they're living in forts um, in Ohio and Illinois. Are they living in what we know is that Northwest Territory, folks? Yes. So um, we're going to move now to 1799. Why was 1799 an important year for young Zebulon Pike? Well, in early 1799, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant of the infantry. But come November of 1799, young Zebulon went from being a second lieutenant to a first lieutenant in the first infantry. That's uh, quite odd to have two promotions in one year, but hey, if the commanders above feel as though this uh, young fellow has um, earned his uh, distinction, or rather his rank, by moving further up the ladder, then there's no reason to have any hesitations on keeping him back. You know, another important historical figure died in um, December of 1799, you know, he was uh, at his funeral service, a fellow named um, Harry Lee, um, a.k.a. Robert E. Lee's father, spoke at this man's funeral. And he said about the fellow who died that he was the first he was first in the hearts of his fellow countrymen. You know who that person was, folks? George Washington. So whenever I think of the year 1799, I think of uh, when George Washington passed away. So here, Zebulon Pike is getting promoted from second lieutenant to first lieutenant, but what do you know? Our country that year loses one of its great leaders, and being none other than George Washington, who who rightfully uh, deserved the title of uh, father of our country. Young Zebulon's military career included, um, I, I, found, I think this is uh, worth pointing out, that his uh, military career included working on logistics and payroll, at various frontier posts like Fort Bellefontaine, located near uh, present-day St. Louis. And it was at Fort Bellefontaine that um, Zebulon Pike um, got acquainted, or rather I should say came into contact with a fellow general by the name of James Wilkinson, who would become the governor of the Upper Louisiana Territory. And General James Wilkinson uh, was the one that went about mentoring uh, Zebulon Pike. You know, you got to have a mentor somewhere, and I think it's great that this uh, general is uh, looking after this young fellow whom he knows has uh, potential to do a lot of uh, significant uh, things um, in terms of, um, from a militaristic approach, um, as our young nation is now growing. Oh, what did General James Wilkinson instruct Lieutenant Zebulon Pike to do come July 30th, 1805? Well, Lieutenant Pike was instructed to travel the Mississippi River to its source, that is, to its um, primary route, which included plotting the course of the river to describing the land and its resources from St. Louis to reporting the number of residences of Indians and their trade to selecting sites for acquiring land. So this isn't a joyride, folks. This isn't just some little vacation that he can take and do things as he uh, as he comes and uh, how do you say it? as he chooses to do on his own time. No, he's got a um, very important mission to fulfill, and that is by going up the Mississippi River, he's got to, to determine for himself that, hey, where are the best strategical uh, locations for military posts so that we can go about trading with um, Indians that we can uh, establish strong allies, or rather I should say strong alliances with. But we also have got to know for exactly how many Indians are residing along um, the Mississippi because you know not all the Indians for example might want to be our friends while some will want to trade with us others may not others will see us as enemies considering that a handful 
a large handful, that is, of Indian nations or civilizations have, have built strong ties with the British for perhaps uh, just over 40 years uh, from the time that the French and Indian War uh, came to an end in uh, 1763, in that same year with the uh, Parliament's uh, passage of the Proclamation Act. So, you know, think about it. If you've had strong alliances with, um, with the British in just over 40 years, or even just less than 40 years, do you think you want to just change your alliances overnight just because a new country claims to have acquired territory and land that they may think rightfully belongs to them, but in your all's eyes, it doesn't? No, you, you, know, you can't just make these changes overnight. For all we know, a lot of these Indian tribes will probably view Americans as invasive species meaning that, for one, they're not native to the land, and two, being an outsider, they pose nothing more than an absolute threat to a way of life that has been in existence for well over a hundred years or longer. Well, um, we're moving on now to August 9th of 1805. Zebulon Pike departs St. Louis with 20 men on a 70-foot keelboat. Let me ask you this. Um, are we having any going-away parties, folks, for these people? No. So, in other words, uh, you know, yes, those who have, um, whom are overseeing this um, mission, not just Zebulon Pike himself, but the government, yes, they are there to wish Pike and his uh, 20 men they're there to wish them well. They're there to wish them a safe voyage, but we don't have any farewell parties where, you know, a band sings songs um, or plays a tune. We don't have any of that. This is a very, um, what you call, it's a delicate matter, um, maybe in a way top secret, but at the same time, there is unfinished work because if the United States is going to um, expand and prove for a direct fact that this uh, territory that they claim is theirs, they've got to go, we, we as a nation have to go above and beyond to, um, to know everything there is to know about this new terrain. So that's why we're sending people out westward, not just Lewis and Clark, but we're, we're sending men like Zebulon Pike, who not only has military experience, but, but is someone who um, knows a great deal about um, about, uh, what do you call it, navigating, who has a great deal about logistics and all. So we've got to know what's ahead of us. If not, then we're never going to know how to go about um, establishing boundary lines. We're not going to know how to go about um, establishing um, any kind of treaties in unknown charted waters. So we have a lot at stake here. So Zebulon Pike and his... Um, 20-man crew uh, depart St. Louis on August 9, 1805. General Wilkinson ordered Pike, that is, he orders Zebulon Pike to observe British traders during the fall and winter seasons. Why would uh, he want Zebulon Pike to observe British traders? Well, he's got to understand how they go about doing their business. You know, this isn't, oh, hi there, uh, such and such tribe. Um, my name is so-and-so, and I have all these goods for you or these goods that might be of interest to you. No, he, he's got to understand the lay of the land. He's got to understand how the British have, can go about maintaining alliances with these tribes. He's got to know the full nine yards. So Pike's mission obviously would not be the same in terms of training preparation or let alone funding like Lewis and Clark's mission or rather expedition. So, you know, Lewis and Clark, uh, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, rather, they got the full nine yards. I mean, they got all the funding. They got the training, the preparation. Maybe that's why we've been so accustomed for so long to getting this assumption that only one journey out west took place. And that could be in large part because of all the funding all the preparation and training. 
Zebulon Pike and his men, they'll learn along the way, but they haven't had the time to get the training that they need. So for Pike and his crew, this is going to be a, a journey that's going to involve some trial and error, but it's also going to be a journey that um, that's full of unknowns. Sure, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark had some unknowns, but maybe their level of unknowns was not anywhere like what Zebulon Pike and his crew will um, will discover. So where exactly does Zebulon Pike and his crew arrive on September the 4th, 1805? Do they arrive at Michilimackinac? Do they arrive at Labaye? Or do they arrive at Prairie du Chen? They arrive at Prairie du Chen. And upon arrival, Zebulon Pike comes across a deserted French forti fortification along the uh, prairie southern end. Although it looks, although, you know, it's deserted, uh, abandoned, however, come fall and spring, being the uh, core trading seasons, Zebulon Pike will learn that Prairie du Chen's population skyrockets as traders from Michilimackinac made their way, made their trek southward. So we got to keep in mind here that okay, there's a fortification at, along Prairie du Chen's southern end, but it's not just confined to um, to the tribes that uh, that are uh, just on the outskirts of this uh, post. Michilimackinac is to the north in uh, what we now know as the uh, present-day Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So we've got to take in mind, folks, that people as far north as uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan are making their uh, trek southward through um, by water via the Straits of Mackinac to uh, make their way southward into uh, what we now know as uh, present-day uh, Wisconsin, now, as a matter of fact, Prairie du Chen is in Wisconsin, and for those of you who are wondering, is it anywhere near Milwaukee? Uh, the answer is that Prairie du Chen is southwest of uh, Milwaukee. It's uh, close to, very close to the uh, Wisconsin-Illinois line. As a matter of fact, I know this through my uh, primary work being in uh, transportation, that um, it's been a long time um, since I did a shipment for Prairie du Chen, but uh, some years back I did one for Prairie du Chen and uh, looked up online to see exactly where it was located in Wisconsin. And it's uh, not far from uh, Rockford, Illinois, which is uh, west of Chicago. Uh, Rockford, it would be fair to say, is more uh, closer to uh, northwest Illinois. But if, in case any of y'all are wondering what other um, major towns or cities are um, located uh, around um Prairie du Chen. Um, I can tell you, for example, like uh, Janesville, Wisconsin, uh, Beloit, uh, Delavan, Whitewater. Uh, so those are some other uh, common, um, well-known uh, towns or uh, cities that are uh, not far from um, Prairie du Chen. Well, you know, it, what would you say is one uh, challenge? You know, Lewis and Clark probably had this challenge too, but luckily they had um, people whom were Indian interpreters along their journey. Did Zebulon Pike have anybody along his in his crew, being a 20-man crew, did any of them have any um, experience with understanding Indian languages? The answer is no. So that is a disadvantage right there, but who can Zebulon Pike turn to, given that he's already arrived at uh, Prairie du Chen? Whom can he turn to for um, interpretation purposes, considering that nobody in his company knows the languages of tribes residing above Prairie du Chen? He turns to men like Pierre Rousseau and Joseph Renville, so thank heavens he's now made a connection, not just a general connection, but he's made a connection with two men whom have uh, garnered, up, garnered enough experience, um, personal experience, to, um, to get an under, 
idealistic or rather a realistic understanding of the Indian languages uh, for those tribes residing above Prairie du Chen. Besides the area south of Prairie du Chen, where else had Zebulon Pike selected site-wise for American forts? Okay, uh, let me ask you this. Where do you think, besides south, the area south of Prairie du Chen, where do you think Zebulon Pike would have selected uh, his sites? Number one uh, was along the west bank of the Mississippi River, north of the Des Moines River Rapids. Okay, and when I, you know, when I, any of you all hear of Des Moines, what should that, uh, what should that indicate? Des Moines, Iowa, you know, that's the capital of Iowa. How about an, another location, uh, three miles up uh, the Wisconsin River at what was called the Petite Gris. So, hey, you know, you've got to, um, you can't take your, you can't take your sweet time forever in trying to find a um, idealistic site. I don't know if these were the grandest of locations, but they were better than no, they they were better than no uh, than not having any choices. Here's something that I'm going to mention now, but I'm going to talk about it here again uh, before uh, this uh, episode segment is over. What gift was viewed as essential for forging alliances with Indian tribes? Does anybody want to take a guess? Metals. How about metals? And like I said a moment ago, we're going to talk more about metals here shortly, but I just want to go ahead and throw that out now. Okay, um, so Zebulon Pike and his crew have uh, obviously, they've obviously set foot on Prairie du Chen, which they, um, based considering the fact that they've arrived there on September 4th of 1805. But how does uh, Zebulon Pike view um, the Prairie du Chen peoples? Does he see them as being polite or does he see them as being ignorant? Or is it hard to tell? No, he view, he sees these people as being as uh, very polite. Six days after arriving into Prairie du Chen, Zebulon Pike comes to the village of La Fuel, where Dakota Sioux forge an alliance. Pike presented the village with gifts. What kind of gifts do you think he would have presented these people with? Tobacco, salt, rum. I often wondered if any, if any of these uh, Indian tribes that, uh, com that comprised of the Dakota Sioux had ever seen tobacco before. And the only reason I say that is because I know, for one, that, um, that it would be very um, hard to grow tobacco in what we now know as present-day North and South Dakota. When I think of tobacco, I think of that being a, um, a crop that is grown in a warmer climate um, or in a, um, a region that's more adept to it, that's what you call um, not extremely hot, but about um, a little bit more milder, uh, semi-arid, of course, when I think of tobacco, I think of Virginia, where I live, because for many, many years, Virginia, or even centuries, Virginia, for, for Virginia, tobacco was the uh, lucrative cash crop. But of course, we also should keep in mind that, um, not to get off subject, but one thing I do have to remind myself is that even before the English came to what we now know as present-day Jamestown, Virginia, the Indians were already uh, growing uh, tobacco in the um, in the Tidewater region, however, their tobacco was um, different compared to the uh, tobacco that the English would eventually grow and and basically became so successful that uh, that it eventually uh, led to uh, conflicts between the natives and the um, English people over um, over land, not just land, but how much land was being used for for planting and harvesting tobacco. So basically for the Indians, their tobacco was a, um, what you call it, had a um, rough um, smell to it. It, it was non-sweet. 
whereas the European tobacco was uh, far sweeter and, and, and in their eyes far more profitable. But yes, nonetheless, uh, Zebulon Pike uh, does forge an alliance with the Dakota Sioux to where he presents the village people with gifts of tobacco, salt, and rum. Although um, Zebulon Pike was sent westward to represent the U.S., considering Britain still retained trading rights under the Jay Treaty, Zebulon himself still faced such obstacles like not speaking Indian languages to having a lack of knowledge when it came to conducting uh, diplomacy. In other words, he had no diplomacy skills. Well, what takes place on September 23, 1805 at an island around the mouth of the St. Peter's and Mississippi Rivers? Well, for starters, a council meeting took place involving Zebulon Pike and an assortment of Dakota tribes. Secondly, Pike came away with obtaining land for a military post located around the entrance to the St. Croix River. Of course, when I think of St. Croix, I think of St. Croix, Minnesota, which is about 45 minutes outside of Minneapolis, and the St. Croix River is in Minnesota. However, uh, Zebulon Pike, the big thing that took place around this time is that Zebulon Pike himself went about conducting peace treaty, or rather conducting a peace treaty between the Sioux and the Chippewa. You know, from what I uh, recall, um, having read what was necessary in, in preparation for this podcast, and I'll ask you all this right now. Did General James Wilkinson instruct Zebulon Pike to engage in any kind of peace negotiation process with any Indian tribe he would have come into contact with? No, he didn't. On the other hand, though, Zebulon Pike was a, was a determined man. There's nothing wrong with being determined. At the same time, you got to ask yourself, how far do you go in terms of bending the rules? How far do you go in terms of going above what you were not asked to do prior to leaving? So Zebulon Pike is, becomes very adamant about forging ahead, that is, going ahead and conducting a treaty between the Sioux and the Chippewa. The treaty that Zebulon Pike went about conducting required the Sioux tribes to give the U.S. land, to give the United States rather, land with the purpose, or land whose purposes would be to go about creating military posts as well as ending existing conflicts with the Chippewa. Okay, well, you know, Zebulon Pike did move up in the right step maybe in the eyes of some. However, Zebulon Pike's going to have to... I, wonder, I don't want to say this is a bad price, but what I can say is that Zebulon Pike is going to have to do something that, in our eyes, is going to fork, is going to fork out a lot. He's going to have to um, give the Dakota Sioux roughly $250 worth of goods. $250, that might not seem like a lot, but in that day and time, that was a lot of money. But you know what? If Zebulon Pike doesn't give the, this, the Dakota Sioux this money, then basically in their eyes, the treaty is null and void. Okay, moving back to metals now, folks. Uh, what's significant about the presence of metals and flags? Well, for European powers like Britain, France, and Spain, the presence of medals and flags could go about developing political, economic, and military alliances amongst their nations and Indian tribes. The Indians saw the medals as symbols of honor as well as an alliance regarding trade. So in other words, for the Indians, this wasn't about glorification or gratification. To them, the symbols meant that, hey, our 
the European outsiders, you know, respect us for who we are, considering that we have provided them with uh, goods that they can't find back home in their native land. But at the same time, they are providing us with goods that we ourselves cannot find in our own native land. Zebulon Pike liked getting things done, but, but, come, his, but come upon arriving to St. Louis, that's where um, there would be uncertainty. In other words, arrival, his arrival into St. Louis would uh, go about bringing some uncertainty, and that's what we're going to get ready to discuss next here. Did Zebulon Pike come into conflict with other agents? Before we get into the St. Louis piece of this, but I should ask you all this question right now. Do any of you all believe Zebulon Pike came into conflict with other agents? Well, is it fair to say that conflict is inevitable, regardless of what situation you're in? I mean, is there a chance for there to be some kind of conflict? Sure. Doesn't mean it has to necessarily be big, but there's always some uh, percentage chance that there could be a conflict. And if there is a conflict, you've got to do everything you can to resolve it before it gets uh, escalated to the point where resolution is not is no longer in the picture. So the answer is yes. Um, Zebulon Pike did come into conflict with um, with one agent in particular. His name was Hugh McGillis, whom was not a friend to the United States. So if Hugh McGillis is not a friend to the United States, folks, who is he a friend of? Is he a friend of Britain? Is he a friend of Spain? Or is he a friend of France? The answer is Britain. And I say that maybe it's because of his name. But Hugh McGillis is part of the Northwest Company, which has already um, established itself um, very firmly, uh, considering that this company, uh, led by Hugh McGillis, uh, commands trading posts at Sandy and Leech Lakes, where the, where the British flag flies high and mighty. In other words, Britain has already asserted its influence and dominance in this region to where Anybody from the outside probably wouldn't stand much of a chance in terms of competition, but also knowing that, hey, the, Brit the British have uh, other fellow brethren to think about, meaning they're Indian allies. So this British flag or British flags are flying high and mightily strong. Zebulon Pike doesn't like the fact that uh, Hugh McGillis has what in his eyes what he would call a monopoly. Zebulon Pike has pretty much uh, charges Hugh McGillis with flying a non-American flag in newly claimed U.S. land. And if that's bad enough, um, Zebulon Pike demands or is flat out demanding that the Northwest Company adhere to new policies of licensure and trade under new U.S. laws. Well, you know, the British haven't heard anything about these policies, so this is all foreign to them. And if I'm not mistaken, um, the British already acquired the land west of Mackinac Island. That was land that even the United States didn't acquire. So if the United States missed out on that opportunity, you know, yes, we can say all we want left and right that this land that Zebulon Pike and his crew are on, they may think it's their territory, but in actuality it's not. Because they're in large part because the United States government did not know about what was just west of the uh, territory that was already um, established. So here's a loophole that is going to take um, quite a while to get resolved. So for um, Hugh McGillis, he was polite enough to listen to Pike's concerns, but Hugh McGillis alone can't make promises that all existing policies could be removed right away. In other words, Hugh McGillis isn't the Prime Minister of England. Um, he, 
he may have a a very uh, unique post in being a, a head commander of the um, Northwest Company, but even Hugh McGillis himself does not have the authority to say, "Okay, you're right, Mister Pike. I'll just get all my, I'll tell all my men to pack up their belongings and we'll leave and go about our merry way and um, and just go somewhere else where uh, where we won't be in the way of you all." Now, that's not the way it uh, worked, uh, unfortunately. April of 1806 um, sees the comings and goings of Zebulon Pike and his crew arriving and leaving Prairie du Chen. But Zebulon Pike himself, for about two days, met with um, the Winnebago, including a handful of reps from Sioux Nation tribes. In the same manner that he went about um, doing business with the Dakotas and the Chippewa um, Indian um, tribes, Zebulon Pike also would go about telling the Winnebago to surrender all British medals as they would get replaced with American medals and flags. You know, it's one thing to tell an Indian nation that you all will have new um, a new flag, being that of the, of the United States flag, and that you will get medals that um, are from the United States and not Britain. The bigger question is, can you keep this promise? It's one thing to say something to someone, but if you can't keep the promise, then what's the point in even what what's the point in even going about trying to promise something to someone to begin with? Could one expedition alone up the Mississippi River persuade another country like Great Britain to give up their domain and ways of life that had been in play for over a hundred years? You know, the Lewis and Clark expedition was, was major, but even that expedition alone, that expedition alone um, didn't change everything overnight, but it did have um, a significant impact. But is it fair to say that Zebulon Pike's um, travels could change um, the way another country um had uh, instituted its way of life for over a hundred years, considering that Britain um, had been uh, that Brit that uh, Britain had been um, in the westward um, territories even um, before the French and Indian War began. No, I mean you you can't force people against their own will to give up something that that they don't know anything else differently about. But at the same time, how about General James Wilkinson? You know, he never gave Lieutenant Zebulon Pike any formal authority in conducting treaties between a nation, a.k.a. the United States and the Indian nations. You know, if I'm not mistaken from a previous podcast, we talked about how... Um, how um, only uh, those who were licensed could do business with Indians. That is, they had a proper license. But even individuals alone could not conduct treaties with Indian nations without the proper consent and support of the federal government. And which body of Congress, folks, has the power to um, approve the treaties and would require two-thirds support? The United States Senate. They are the ones, along with the president, that can approve, the Senate can approve a treaty, and then um, the president can, you know, go along with it and then uh, conduct the formal treaty with um, one or multiple nations. So for individuals to try to go about conducting treaties with foreign nations or with uh, Indian nation tribes, that to me is uh, something that, that's a big um no-no on my end. Now, uh, while, while along the journey up the Mississippi River, Zebulon Pike did in fact receive British flags and medals from Sioux, Chippewa, and Winnebago, promising new replacements, aka American medals. Okay, yeah, it's great that you've collected all these, what some of us might say as souvenirs, but the bigger question is, are you going to be able to fulfill your promise? 
So how does Zebulon Pike go about defending himself to General Wilkinson? I don't know if I would say General Wilkinson's livid with him, but he is very, very worried about what kind of backlash might happen, especially knowing that, okay, if the Indians' promises weren't kept, think about what, what could happen, folks. You could have a war. You could have Indians raiding um, American forts, not just Indians themselves, but British coming along, British forces as well, taking part in the raiding and destruction of these forts, killing our um, innocent people, taking them hostage, prisoners of war, so all in the name of not um, following through on a promise. So for Zebulon Pike, he went about defending himself by emphasizing that his own life would would be in danger should he return to the lands of the Sioux and Chippewa without any medals to give. That's pretty much what he said. He said that, hey, my life would have been in, would be in danger if I did not bring them these people back any uh, medals as tokens of uh, gift, tokens for alliances. What did Congress enact in April 1806? Congress enacted a measure creating the superintendent position of Indian trade. Superintendent, of course, when I think of superintendent, I always think of school superintendents. But yes, there, is a, a, there was a superintendent position of Indian trade, which kept the current practice of government trading houses intact. The superintendent himself got appointed by the U.S. president. But the superintendent would be the one that would go about overseeing the comings and goings of all goods whose purposes pertain to trade amongst the Indian nations. The superintendent would also be in charge of overseeing the minting and distribution of metals. Well, Zebulon Pike did not know about all this, but we might say he could be in for somewhat of a rude awakening. Zebulon Pike doesn't get to call the shots, folks. It's now the superintendent who's in charge of overseeing this minting and distribution of metals, and the superintendent's going to be the one that would tell someone like Zebulon Pike, okay, this is when you can expect to receive metals, and this is when you would be expected to be able to go about distributing the metals to the people whom you made promises earlier to. Now, uh, whom did President Thomas Jefferson turn to for commanding the Upper Louisiana Territory? There was more than one man. It was two men. Who do you think these two men were? Are these men whom have already um, achieved fame? Yes. Did were they uh, recently a part of an expedition? Yes. None other than uh, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark whom in September 1806 completed their voyage to the Pacific Ocean and back. Early March of 1807 saw Meriwether Lewis get appointed governor of the Louisiana Territory, whereas William Clark got appointed brigadier general of the territorial militia, including the head U.S. Indian agent. April 1807 sees William Clark... uh, arrived back to St. Louis, where he will go about overseeing Indian trade and relations, stretching from New Madrid, and I'm sure many of you all are wondering, what's New, Ma- New Madrid? Of course, when I, when I think of Madrid, I think of Madrid, Spain, but there is a place in Missouri called New Madrid, Missouri. That's how I know about this place, and the only reason I know about New Madrid, Missouri is because uh, come 1811, the year 1811 saw a, uh, an earthquake um, take place in the United States, and I believe that the epicenter was in uh, New Madrid, uh, Missouri. The effects were so bad that it uh, could be felt all the way uh, to, what, to where we now know as uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And for those of you who want to know exactly where New Madrid is located in Missouri, it's not far from the Missouri-Kentucky line. It is closer to uh, Paducah, Kentucky. So, for William Clark, his, um, his Indian trade and relations network will stretch as, from, as, um, from New Madrid 
from what we now know as present-day New Madrid, Missouri, to the Arkansas River in the south. From as far north as Illinois to the western Great Lakes being uh, Lake Superior, uh, Lake Michigan, to the entire Missouri River in the west. Is this not an empire or what, folks? But nonetheless, William Clark has his uh, work cut out for him. But you know what? I think it's fair to say even Zebulon Pike had his work cut out for him. And I can admit that he actually did do some good stuff. It's probably, you know, hopefully he may have learned a good lesson by realizing that, hey, while yes, you do want to come away on good terms with Indian tribes, he, he needs to be reminded that, hey, he does not have sole authority in conducting treaties with these uh, tribes. In other words, if, if a treaty is going to take place, Zebulon Pike will need to now know going forward that he needs to go before Congress to explain why treaties should be taking why treaties should be taking place between certain tribes like the Dakota Sioux and the Chippewa and what we can give to them as formal gifts. Well, uh, we've covered a lot of ground um, as tonight, but then again, we always seem to cover a lot of ground in our in these podcast episodes, regardless of the topic. Uh, thank you again, as always, for listening. You all are uh, wonderful listeners. I don't know what I would do without you all, but I really do appreciate you all being such um, avid um, history buffs. And for those of you who may not be uh, avid history buffs, I do think it's great that you all are um, taking an interest in uh, topics that either have been discussed at one time in your all's lives or topics that you have um, learned about on television or by going somewhere but maybe didn't know enough about those topics until um, now. So um, thank you again from the bottom of my heart, and I uh, look forward to being back on the air again with you all soon. And when I am on the air again next, our um, next uh, our next segment for this um, book, we'll, we will be discussing um, some more about uh, William Clark and perhaps um, once again about uh, Prairie du Chen. After all, we are learning about the battle for Prairie du Chen. I mean, we haven't gotten just yet to the point where the where an actual battle at Prairie du Chen will happen, but we are at the same time we are learning about the underlying origins because in order to understand how a battle took place, we've got to understand its past. Well, again, uh, thank you for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Take care and stay safe for now. <laughs>